it makes you want to pee. I am one shot of Grand Marnier deep. Yep, I'm one beer and one sip of red wine. Hello and welcome to the DL Presents Babylon Berlin. This is a deep dive companion podcast to the German television series Babylon Berlin. I'm Leslie Leak, and I'm joined as always by a man who's quick to blackmail his colleague into having sex with him in the basement of the local club, but is equally quick to forgive a lover who tries to have him killed, Dan Finner. That's me. Each episode of the podcast will cover one episode of the show. We'll give you the down low on the plot, characters, and the history. But be warned, the DL Presents is not for the slow of mind or the young of age, because the podcast and the media that it covers are BAFA. B-A-F-A by adults for adults. But if you're cool with watching corpses float down the Spree River and seeing an innocent woman bleed to death in thick cop's arms, you might be ready for the DL. So don your lederhosen. And drink your libations. Dance loosely. In dangerous lingerie. Let's dive in. Leslie, while editing this episode, I realized that we made a mistake and I want to explain it to our listeners. Our beloved thick cop, his name is Bruno Walter, but we have referred to him in this episode by literally every possible combination of his names. Yeah, at some point we call him Walter Bruno. Sometimes we just call him Walter. Or just Bruno. Needless to say, as you listen to the episode, just know that any Walter or any Bruno is our beloved thick cop. The Bruno Walter. The one and only. Real quick, Leslie, I want to talk about what you like about episode four. Okay, I'll go first. I love that episode four starts in the canal again. Yeah, I you mean, didn't mention that. So, it, it, yeah. Kartikov jumps out of the canal in the previous episode, butt-ass naked, tries to rob a homeless man of his coat, and gets slashed across the chest. This episode, we see Boris, our train conductor, Russian train conductor, face down, floating in the river, the Spree River, I believe, flowing through Berlin. Before we got on the microphone, though, you were telling me about what you liked about this episode. Yeah, my takeaway, my main takeaway is that if I hadn't been in previous episodes, I am now 100% team Charlotte. She has my vote. <laughs> for, for many reasons that we'll get into during the plot synopsis, but we're just seeing a new side of her. Many new sides of her. My other main takeaway is that Kartikov is way too gullible and frankly, pussy-whipped. Kartikov is. He absolutely is. I can't believe Svetlana pulls that over on him. All she does is flash a piece of paper that says she's been in jail, and all of a sudden, he cries into her arms, and then she slaps the shit out of him, and he's like, yeah, I deserve it. Leslie, I've been hoodwinked by a beautiful woman, or two. I... Look, I understand. It happens. Yeah. These things happen. This is very real. This is very true to life. It's hard to maintain your focus on the revenge murder of your betrayer <laughs> when she's very attractive and fairly convincing and telling you things you already wanted to hear, like there's still a chance you can get this gold to Trotsky. I know what that feels like. She has those, Um, I was just thinking, you know, it's vain of me to just be thinking about myself all the time, but she has those... Leslie Leak, <laughs> Leslie Leak, use a freak. Use a freak. No, I was just thinking that Svetlana has those big eyes that you said were infantile about my, my own eyes, or maybe I said that, but... I you think, said that. I think she has, like, puppy dog eyes. You Leslie know? Leak has big puppy dog eyes. For those out there <laughs> listening, I'm sorry you're missing out on it, but she's got big, lovely eyes. 
They're, they're like, yeah. But so does Svetlana. I think she just turns on those big orbs and sucks Kardikov in. You mentioned that you were hardcore Team Charlotte, which is, of course, we all are. There's no, there's no like, opposition to Charlotte. But I'm realizing right now during this conversation, I am Team Svetlana. I want her to win. I have no idea what her motivations are. She wants gold. What for? Who cares? I want her to have it. She deserves it. Give her the gold, baby. I hope that's how things turn out. <laughs> I actually appreciate you saying that because I've been a little too shy to admit out loud that I am, having seen everything that we've seen, and I won't go into what that is, I am Team Bruno and Alfred Neeson. Interesting. Yep. Very interesting. Yep. I hope that Svetlana doesn't turn out to be like a Nazi sympathizer or something. <laughs> I hope that's not what she's doing with that gold. I don't want to hate on Svetlana. She's a great character. But what I like so much about Alfred Neeson and Bruno, which this is, by the way, just completely off topic from what we're supposed to be talking about, but they are prime examples of complex characters, especially Bruno. And I, I have to say, I know your team's Svetlana, but she is not all that complex. She has a complex backstory, but she herself is not that complex. There's more to her that I hope we learn. You know, there's so many questions about what's going on with her. I just hope we get a little bit more. But she's talented. She's got at least two personalities that we know of. (laughs) She literally has an alter ego. She's working with the Russians. Is she a spy? I don't really know. What does she want the gold for? She certainly hasn't been telling the Russian embassy about the gold. And also, I have mad respect for Svetlana. She, one day ago, had her and Kartikov's comrades just plowed down and then convinces Kartikov that she had nothing to do with it, bones him, and then while they're laying in the bed and he's just, like, lamenting his sorrows to her, she's just, like, ripping cigs and is like, oh, yeah, I understand. She goes straight <laughs> for the gold, too, in that scene. She starts talking about it. She's like, don't worry. There's still a way we can get the gold. Kartikov's like, all my friends are dead. She's like, don't sweat it, buddy. We'll get that gold for your, for your friend Trotsky, for right? Yeah, yeah, for him, yeah. of course. <laughs> don't worry. We'll get that fucking gold. Back on track now. As with every episode of The DL Presents Babylon Berlin, we will start out our podcast with a scene-by-scene rundown of episode four's plot synopsis, followed by the history segment of our podcast. In segment number two, we'll be talking about the May Day Massacre in three acts, I suppose. The first one explaining where International Workers' Day even came from in the first place and why it's on May 1st. We'll talk about the actual events that went down on May 1st through May 3rd in Berlin, Germany in 1929. This time period is also referred to as Blut May. Which is German for Bloody May. Not to be confused with Bloody Sunday. There's a lot of bloody times in history, so we feel the need to subdivide. And then the third act of our May Day history portion of the podcast will be explaining the political fallout that occurred after the events that take place in episode four in Babylon, Berlin. In real life, this truly was a point in time where the Social Democrats, the kind of center political party that was running the show in the Weimar Republic, started to have their support seriously eroded to the point they could no longer govern. And then in the third segment of our podcast, what we like to call Leckerbissen, German for tidbits, we will be talking about all the fun little details and morsels the directors put into episode four. Like, for instance, if you wondered why the heck Walter Bruno says they're going to go search SO36 segment two, we'll tell you what that is. We'll also tell you about the beautiful song playing in the cold open and the starlet who sings it. Dan, do you hear those drums? Do you know what that means? It means that it's time to join arms with our fellow workers and fight against the powers of capitalism. (laughs) Calm down, comrade. It means that it's time to deep dive into the plot synopsis of episode four. 
All right, plot synopsis. This this episode of Babylon Berlin opens up again at the canal, just like it was at episode three, where we have Kardikov emerging nude from the canal in downtown Berlin. Correctamundo. Love the continuity. Thanks, guys. But this time, we've got Boris's dead body floating down the river. Yeah, I didn't know his name. This is the Russian train conductor whose hands were run over by the Russian ambassador at the very end of episode three. He's floating face down in what we find out is the spree river. A very long river that goes all the way from Berlin down to Czechoslovakia. And for us Americans, it's strange to think of a river flowing north, but it does. The Spree River flows north. Little announcement here on the DL Presents Babylon Berlin, episode four. I have booked a honeymoon with my bride-to-be, and we are going to Berlin. We might see if we can take a boat down the Spree. I don't know if that's You should definitely take a boat down the Spree, and then maybe you should, like, Zoom call me, even though the quality would be so bad. We can do, like, a bonus episode from Berlin. I would definitely call you. Call me. Call me. I will call you from a coal barge floating down the canal. International rates apply. But back to the show. The scene opens. This episode opens with a little musical number and the body of Boris, our Russian train conductor, floating dead in the Spree River. And Leslie, you told me you really liked this song that's being sung. I do. It's quite it's quite pretty. It's actually like a very elegant moment. Elegant cinematography, macabre moment. So the song that's being sung is called Das East Berlin, which I believe translates to This is Berlin. It's being sung by Marlene Dietrich, who is referenced elsewhere in this show. Stay tuned for the Leckerbiesen for the third part of our podcast, where we'll go a little bit deeper into the lyrics of that song and when it was recorded. But for now, suffice it to say, that's our opening scene back at the Spree River, back at the canal in Berlin. And all we see is that floating body until the credits roll. Next, we see Garion on the subway with a bunch of May Day protesters, and he himself is on his way to the May Day protest, but for different reasons. He somehow gets off the subway and then gets himself immediately into the front lines of this standoff that's forming between the protesters and the police. And interestingly enough, the police do this, this like, intimidating baton drumming. Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. Kind of like their barking, chanting, snapping thing. It was very cinematic. I have no idea if that would have happened in real life but it builds the dramatic tension nicely and the other classic and cinematic and true to life moment that happens in that scene is seeing a young protester kneel down and grab a rock to throw a rock. What I think of as the classic, timeless beginning of a skirmish. Another note from this scene is that when getting off of the train, when getting off the subway, Garion arrives at Hermannplatz, which is in the Kreuzberg neighborhood, referenced previously in episode three, and they come up above ground with scaffolding everywhere and a big sign saying, now building Karstad Hermannplatz which is an actual building that was finished in 1929, one of the early skyscrapers of Berlin, and still stands today in that area. It's like a giant shopping mall, I guess is what I would call it. I I don't really know what to say, but that building would have been under construction at that time, and the directors went ahead and put it in there. But back to the show, Bruno tells Garion, once Garion breaks away from the skirmish with police, that they're going to search SO36 area segment 2. Needless to say, they're going to communist sympathizing neighborhoods to terrorize people. They're just ransacking homes, and we get this, like, kind of fun tune playing in the background as they're just popping in and out of poor people's residences, turning out their wardrobes and throwing their shit all around. I like that you call that song fun, because I actually really like it. I think of it as the frantic song. Song. Yeah. And all through season one, the directors reuse some of these musical motifs. I particularly liked this song. It has a lot of flute. I hope it's flute. I hope I'm right about that playing in it. And it plays during a handful of action sequences, including, I think, 
in episode one when Garion is chasing Franz Karajewski across the roof. I looked up this song and I have no idea how to say this word. You listening at home, please tell me. How would you say H-E-T-Z-J-A-G-D? Hetzjagd? Hetzjagd. That song is by Johnny Klimek and Tom Tickwer. It's from the motion picture soundtrack. You can find it online and also on YouTube. Great song. Used all throughout the first season. Tom Tickwer being one of the directors of the show. Back to the plot, though. Back to the plot. So the police raid a large apartment building, and and Bruno says afterwards that they searched 32 apartments, and all they found was one antique musket. There's a little bit of a comic scene, I'd say first joke of the episode, where Bruno Walter puts this old musket to his head and kind of pantomimes his suicide. Obviously, he's not loaded. Nothing happens. But he seems seriously disappointed they didn't make any big busts. Yeah, for sure. As the two are casually ransacking some apartments, they come across a small group of people running in the opposite direction frantically. An armored car pulls down the street, firing indiscriminately, and Gary and Bruno jump into the alcove of a building to avoid being shot at. They witness two women on a balcony get shot by that armored car, and only then does another man who's hiding on the street run over to where Garion and Bruno are, unlock the door to that apartment building, and rush in to help those two women on the balcony. Garion and Bruno follow him. They go up to the apartment, and fun fact, we're introduced to another actor who is also in Dark, Peter Schneider, who plays Helga Doppler in Helga Dark. Doppler, yeah. And he has, I think, an un, un, unnamed credit in this show, but he is cohabitating at the time in the apartment where the two women were shot. I believe they shout the name Herman in the subtitles. It's not clear if that is his name, but it it seems like if he had a name, it would be Herman. Uh, Dark, of course, is a reference to a previously produced uh, German television series that Netflix purchased the rights to and recorded an English language cast and distributed it internationally. Great show. If you haven't seen it, a wild and dark sci-fi ride. But yeah, the actor who plays Helga Doppler in that show plays the now grieving, I'm going to assume, husband whose wife or daughter has now just been shot and killed. Garion is told that there's a doctor down the street, and so he goes back down and out of the apartment where there's still gunfire on the streets and dashes into an alleyway to find the communist doctor that we saw in a previous episode. This would have been the same woman who gave Charlotte Ritter's mother the diagnosis of syphilis. While Garion is out flagging down Dr. Volker, the communist doctor, we get this surprisingly tender and humanizing moment between Walter and one of the women who has been shot and is slowly dying. So we got a humanizing moment between Bruno and his wife, Emmy, in episode three. And I think that this scene is just layering on the complexity of Bruno as a character. Bruno tells the woman to hold on because it's springtime and she wants to go out into the warm air. And just before Garion left to go flag down the doctor, he was tending to the woman who was dying and she called him beautiful. And he said, you're beautiful too. So sad. And so as she's kind of, you know, bleeding out, Walter's holding her comfort her and he tells her that you know soon the pretty boy meaning Gary and will come back and in a couple weeks they'll be able to go out on a date together Garion returns with the communist doctor, Dr. Volker, and she is shocked at the scene. She immediately recognizes Bruno Walter as being a vice squad police officer. And that's the first time that Herman realizes that the two men who've come up the stairs to help him are themselves police officers, believed to have perpetrated this violence in the first place. Yeah, and once Volker IDs them as coppers, as she puts it, they turn around and leave. Bruno's like, this is no good. We're out of here. 
Before they leave that apartment, Bruno takes Garion aside and explains to him that Dr. Volker is a member of the KPD, so that would have been the Communist Party. And furthermore, she's a council person for the Kreuzberg neighborhood. I'm not sure if that's meant to imply that she is on some sort of municipal council for the neighborhood of Kreuzberg within Berlin, or just that she is on the Communist Party's Kreuzberg Council. Either way, she's an influential person, and she is not in favor of the law enforcement cause. The next scene is back at the Red Castle, the police headquarters. Women have gathered to try to get some work for the day, but the madam in charge tells them all the cops have kind of flown the nest that day. They're all at the May Day protest, so there's no work except for one brave woman who wants to take notes during an autopsy. So this is Inspector Bohm works for the homicide department, he needs someone to take notes for an autopsy because somebody's been killed. A lot of the women demure, but Charlotte Ritter, of course, raises her hand and volunteers for the job. Notably, though, right before that, Charlotte is exchanging some of the work she already outsourced to a woman named Doris. Remember when Charlotte invented capitalism? <laughs> Doris asks not only for payment, but she also wants Reinhold Graf's autograph. And it wasn't clear to me if she means I want Graf to sign some paperwork for me, or if she meant very literally because Reinhold Graf is the first, you know, homicide photographer. Maybe she wants his autograph the way you would want an autograph of a famous sports star or actor. I took it to mean like she needed him to sign off on the paperwork so that they could get paid, but draw your own conclusions. Leslie's take makes more sense. (laughs) But I like to think of Reinhold Graf as a serious celebrity. I appreciate and I love that you think you think that. <laughs> so Charlotte does volunteer to take notes for the autopsy and heads down into the morgue. We don't get to see that autopsy take place just yet. First, we get another scene. This one is at the train yard. So this would also be in the Kreuzberg neighborhood. Back in Kreuzberg, this time with Alfred Neeson, rich strawberry face Alfred Neeson. <laughs> And his lackey, Wegner. Neeson is super pissed that the train is not moving right along and that it's been stopped. He doesn't understand why some Russians can get in the way of his well-laid plans. He explains to the Russian ambassador that every day the train doesn't move, he is spending a fortune. The ambassador says, look, there's one train car here that does not contain whatever the rest of these train cars contain, and I'm intent on finding out which one it is. This is when we learn that it's not so easy to search this train because every single train car, according to Neeson and Wegner, contains deadly pesticides. And not only that, but the paperwork that went along with the import has suddenly disappeared. And we know as the audience that Boris took it when he ran. So begrudgingly, Neeson, I guess, agrees or allows the Russian ambassador to have the train pulled inside the depot and each individual train car will be checked there. But they can't get the right skilled employees to open these pesticide cars until Monday. So for now, the train is sitting still. Elsewhere in the train station, Svetlana is being released because remember, she was jailed previously for pulling a gun on the poor depot workers. And as she's sneaking away from the train depot, she switches the number plates on two of the train cars. So the train car that we saw Svetlana enter, the one that's filled with gold, she changes that train number with another car. It seems simplistic, but I guess we are to understand that this way, not even Kardikov, who knows the train number, would be able to identify where the gold is now. Only Svetlana at this point in time knows how to find it. I thought it was very interesting that she was jailed, like, at the train station, but I was thinking maybe it's, like, a custom situation. They definitely have, like, holding cells and customs. I assume, yeah, that the trains have their own jurisdiction because so much international stuff flows through the rail yard. Probably so. 
Yeah. And I mean, as much as women are being discriminated against left and right in this show, I guess in some way they just think, sure, she pulled a gun, but this little blonde is harmless. We'll let her go after one night in the jail. Little do they know. Ugh. International criminal, that Svetlana. She nasty. She crafty. She's nasty in like a mean way, not in a dirty way. Not in a dirty way. Very clean. No, no, no. After the scene at the train station, we come back to see what's going on in the autopsy room, and here tensions are thick. We are a podcast about thickness. That is a theme between the two of us, and I hope that we can continue that. We count audible farts, and you all at home, I hope, are counting the number of times that we reference thickness. Thick is always spelled with two C's, and it's not necessarily a negative thing. The tensions are thick in this scene, meaning that the tensions are robust. They are palpable. Dr. Volker busts into the autopsy, and she's kind of ranting and raving about how the two women were murdered by the police at the May Day protest. She's running real hot and gets in an altercation with Walter Bruno. Because she previously accused Bruno, even back at the apartment, of beginning to cover up the fact that the police shot these two women. So she doesn't want to leave their bodies alone with law enforcement. She doesn't trust them. They exchange some nasty words. Garion breaks it up. And then we get this great little moment where the pathologist gets really sassy with Dr. Volker and says, you know, even though you're a doctor, I don't need your help. You gotta go. They continually refer to Dr. Volker as the doctor for the poor, which is meant to be an insult, but frankly seems virtuous. Yeah, quite endearing. I guess in modern day America where a boo-boo on your leg could bankrupt you. It True. seems kind of nice that they have doctors for the poor. So everyone's throwing shade at Dr. Volker and they make her go. And then Volter turns around and makes some snide comment about there being a woman in the autopsy room. And this time he's referring to Charlotte, who's shown up to take notes for bum, 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 bum. I like when you called him bum. Bum. It's like a bum. It's like, like your bum. Your bum. I don't know how to say it. Officer Bum. Inspector Bum. Inspector Bum. It's kind of a boom. I think it's a boom. Boom. So take notes for Inspector Boom. Pretty quickly, the pathologist suggests that the man they've uncovered on the table must be Russian. We in the audience know that he is Boris. He's the train conductor. We saw him get his hands run over at the end of episode three, and we saw him floating in the river at the beginning of this episode. But law enforcement is figuring this out for the first time. Garion starts to recognize his face because he saw Boris briefly when he was trying to contact Kartikov in Miss Elizabeth's house. But now that Garion's living in Kartikov's room, he got into a fight with Boris and chase Boris out into the street. And then Boris got kidnapped by the Russian embassy's thugs and attempted to reach out his arm to Garion as the car drove away in the night. It's all coming back to Garion slowly, but Charlotte Ritter is also astutely picking up on some things. Charlotte is bold enough to make a single comment about Boris's wounds and is immediately told she can fuck off. She seems to suggest that his hands being crushed was not an accident because both hands were crushed in the exact same way. Nobody accidentally sticks their arm under a car and then just for good measure puts their other arm under there. Charlotte is totally right and yet still gets told to piss off. First impressions of Bohm? Inspector Bohm is a shitty cop, number one. He's got a sexy mustache, I'll give it to him. Fine, I'll give it to him. He is a absolute shit cop. The moment that he realizes this guy's Russian and that Garion can confirm that he at least spoke Russian to Garion in the streets, he's like, who gives a shit about this murder then? Whatever. Those Russians are always killing each other. That's none of our affair. Case closed. Bye bye I was, I was just going to say, he takes all the time to show up to work in his, like, fastidious suit and well-groomed mustache to do no work at all. Lazy as fuck. I hate this guy. 
And he also seems to hate everyone else at the police department. He's like snide to Bruno. He's snide to Garion. He's snide to the pathologist. Like, who does this guy think he is? He's literally rude and talking shit to everybody in that room. I'm sure all of you out there have worked with a coworker like this at some point in time. Who is your inspector, Bohm? Who Tell is us. your Bohm? Email us at the DL Presents at gmail.com. Which at the time of this recording does exist. Cha-ching! Leslie Leak on that tech. Shortly after the autopsy, Garion and Charlotte run into each other at the newsstand buying cigarettes and in Charlotte's case, a pack of cigars for Bohm. So Bohm likes a nice suit. Stellar mustache. A well-groomed mustache and a fat cigar at work. What a lazy fuck. But both Charlotte and Garion are not willing to let a murder in the city just go away way like that. They both agree that murder needs to be looked into, but Garion suggests that because Charlotte's already working for Bohm and he's in the homicide department, it wouldn't look strange for her to do a little more research. When they end their conversation, Garion says he'll be in touch with Charlotte. And he gives her a quick thank you for keeping his little secret. Yeah, in episode two, she finds Garion on the bathroom floor shaking and helps him with a little bit of drugs in the glass vials he had in his coat pocket. He tells her thank you. She gives him a little my lips are sealed action. And thick cop sees it all. Bruno Walter from the open window of his car sees Garion and Charlotte what he thinks is flirting in Alexander Plots. He can't hear what they said but he knows the two of them are in communication. He drives off and neither one of them notices him. Next we get one of my favorite scenes because it's ridiculous. So Svetlana returns home after a long night of incarceration at the train station, and she realizes that something is a little bit amiss. And just then, Kartikov pops out and slaps her in the fucking face. <laughs> Before Kartikov could find the letter opener that he plans to stab and kill Svetlana with, she quickly comes up with a story. She says that it was actually Boris who betrayed them, that the train conductor stole the papers and he took off, that it was his fault, and that she had nothing to do with the murder of the Trotskyites, that in fact she herself has been in jail all night. She thrusts forward the paperwork that she got from the train depot, and that is her saving grace. Yeah, that's apparently enough to to sway Kartikov into thinking that she did not betray him and murder all of his friends. And then, best part, is that she starts slapping him for doubting her. Damn, that's a double-double cross. It's a double-double. It's a triple double. I love it. He slaps her around because she fucking murdered all of his friends. And then she's like, who, me? Oh no, that was Boris. See, I have this slip of paper. Just like any good con man, Svetlana tells Kartikov what Kartikov already wants to believe, which is that she is completely devoted to him and that also the gold is still within their grasp. That if they just play their cards right, they can still get this gold to Trotsky. Kartikov's willing to believe it because it's frankly all he's got at this point in time. And I think there's some feminine wiles in there. What does that mean? Oh, like he wants to believe her because they had a relationship. Yeah, and I, th- I think that she is willing to leverage the loyalty, the gold, and the sexuality yeah, yeah, against yeah. Kartikov. For sure. After she slaps him, Kartikov breaks down, starts crying. She holds him and the scene ends. The next scene is Charlotte walking down the street past some people who are looking for work, destitute on the streets of Berlin. One young woman in particular recognizes Charlotte and catches up with her. She asks if Charlotte remembers her, and she says it was a holiday they took in 1922. It all comes back to her. It says Greta, Greta Overbeck. Yeah, Greta tells her that, you know, they were on a Kinderland holiday, which I think is like, like a kid's summer camp. 
Charlotte. Charlotte asks Greta, what are you doing in Berlin? And Greta explains that she came here originally for a man or with a man named Alphonse, but he has since disappeared on her. Charlotte kind of rolls her eyes and says, I've, yeah, I've heard that story before. Charlotte invites Greta to join her for lunch, and the two walk off to a cafe. It's interesting that at the cafe, Greta seems impressed that Charlotte is working for the police. And Charlotte also gets a twinkle in her eye, and, and I think maybe realizes that she does have a chance now that she's working for someone who works in homicide, at least. And she seems to suggest to Greta that if she puts in the right work, she could become an assistant inspector. After seeing Steph and Walter Bruno walk into this cafe, Charlotte makes a quick dash for the door, but on her way out, she tells Greta, why don't we go dancing? Meet me at the Mocha FD Cafe tonight. At 9 p.m. And it seems like Charlotte's got the gall to kind of take some next steps in becoming an investigator because she goes right up to a, you know, female clerical worker, kind of the woman in charge, and asks her, what does she need to do to become a policewoman? And at first, Charlotte gets kind of brushed off. She's told, go apply to the female police. And Charlotte's like, well, what do they do? And it's like law and order SVU stuff. It's like under 18 sexual offenses. And Charlotte's like, hell no, I'm not interested in that. I want murder, baby. Homicide squad or nothing. Homicide or bust. She's told, of course, that no women work in the homicide department, but she presses on anyway. Next, we get two quick scenes. First, we see that Kartikov and Svetlana have had some makeup sex, and we see Rath in Elizabeth Banke's home talking with her and with Kattelbach, and Kattelbach is explaining to him about communism, Trotsky, Stalin, and the previous ten it turns out that Samuel Kadabach reads Russian. He says that, of course, he speaks Russian. You need to in order to read the great literary works of Russian authors. Garion brings him a letter left behind by Kartikov and asks him to translate it. At first, Kadabach doesn't want to. He seems to suggest that it's a personal letter, just something between lovers, and he's not going to translate. Garion half-jokingly says that, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll arrest you if you don't. And so Kadabach reads it. It's something as simple as, please bring my dress to the cleaners. It's a letter from Svetlana to Kartikov, but notably, it's got Svetlana's address on the outside of the envelope. We'll come back to Rath, Kattelbach, and Benke, but next, we're back with Greta and Charlotte at the Mocha FD Cafe. They play a little dress-up. Charlotte gets her into, gets Greta into a nice dress, does her hair, it looks like she puts on a little makeup, and, and they dance. And as usual, the mood inside the Mocha FD is so different than the absolute mayhem that's been going on in the streets of Berlin this whole episode, which up until now has been police brutality, out-and-out -out murder, and people basically starving and looking for work then it's a wild party with gin and champagne flowing everywhere. People are doing, like, cool dances, and there's gold confetti flying everywhere from the ceiling, a full brass band playing on stage. But the one thing about this scene, Leslie, that really took me out of it that I just felt was unbelievable and unrealistic was that everybody had their own space on the dance floor. <laughs> I've never been on a dance floor where people aren't, like, bumping into me and all up in my grill. Everyone on this dance floor had, like, two feet circumference around themselves for fun dancing, and nobody spilled a drink on anyone. Can't believe it. That wouldn't happen at Mint in downtown Charleston. But this scene also has one of my favorite jokes in it. The best joke. Charlotte and Greta are up at the bar at the Mocha FD, and the white-gloved man comes up to let Charlotte know she has a client waiting for her down in the basement, hands her a red candy, and Charlotte tells Greta she'll be right back. Once Greta's alone, the white-gloved man looks at her and says, What? Don't tell me you're a virgin. And Greta says, No, I'm a Capricorn. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I like, does she know she's making a joke? Is she actually confused? You and me both, Greta. <laughs> yeah, you are, aren't you? Yeah, I am. Me and Germany have the same birthday. 
Long story short, Charlotte never comes back for Greta, or at least it takes longer than she thought it would. Greta packs up her things and leaves. She's not much a one for the party lifestyle. We don't know a lot about Greta yet, but she's fallen on hard times, and I think her heart is just not in it to no. drink and dance and party and meet men, that's for certain. Yeah, I think her wounds are still a little raw, and she enjoyed Charlotte's company, but she's not here to just, like, get trash and dance with strangers alone. Yeah, looking for a gal pal, not a one-night stand. Yeah, for sure. So we see her in line to, I, I assume, stay at a mission or stay at a church for the night. And she's told that only women accompanied by children are going to be led in that evening. They don't have enough room for single people. So she's shuffled off into the street. Meanwhile, Charlotte is in the brothel in the basement of the Mocha FD Cafe with none other than Thick Cop himself. Damn, Thick Cop, will they or won't they bone? I never would have guessed. You didn't see that one coming, I did folks. not see this one coming. So Bruno's there for a little blackmail and a little sex. When I first saw this episode, the blackmail made sense and I was like, ooh, wow, what a plot twist. This Walter Bruno guy, I kind of liked him, but he's kind of rough around the edges. And then like, ooh, damn, yeah, he's going to hold this over Charlotte's head. But then at the end of the scene when he was like, oh, no, we're not done. We're we're definitely going to fuck. I did not see that coming. Yeah, yeah, that's rough. So essentially, Bruno is blackmailing Charlotte. Charlotte has a record, and it's stopping her from getting what she ultimately wants, which is to be a police inspector. Bruno wants something in return for expunging her record, or in, I think, his words, he'll look into it for her. Yeah, there were no promises made on Bruno's part. He was like, I mean, maybe I could do a thing for you, or maybe I could ruin your career. And also, this whole conversation is happening after they've already boned. The scene where Walter's well-polished, sweaty, round body is just like relaxing, reclining post-coital on that little chaise lounge is wonderful to me. And my my fiance Leah also loves it. She refers to him, I think, as his his cherub figure. Yeah, he's got he's got a, a cherub figure, like a Michelangelo painting. Big round belly, muscular arms. Yeah. Unpopular opinion. This scene actually made me like Walter Bruno more because I, I, man, they're just like layering on the complexity with this man. He's complicated. He has that like human side of him, but he's so straightforward about everything. He just screwed his colleague, blackmailed her, casually smoking a cigarette completely naked, acting like he doesn't give a shit. Before we get carried away with Walter Bruno's shiny naked body, I, I gotta say that what he wants out of the exchange is information on Gary and Raph. He tells Charlotte that he knows they're flirting and he expects Charlotte to dig deep into that relationship, gain his trust, and tell Walter what the hell Garion's doing here in Berlin. Because remember, Bruno doesn't trust Garion. He doesn't know why he's here from Cologne. And in the previous episode, Garion refused to tell him, even when asked point blank at Walter's dinner table. This is Walter's way into Garion's world. This scene really becomes spliced together with another scene that is taking place at the Benke residence with Samuel Cattleback, Gary and Rath, and Elizabeth Benke having a conversation about Kardikov and communism and the May Day protests. Garion goes up to his room for a minute 
minute to look through some of Kartikov's belongings. And before he comes down to the kitchen again, you see Kottelbach and Elizabeth Benka talking about the fact that people were killed today and that it was very likely the police that were responsible for that. And although there's a little doubt in her voice, Elizabeth seems to say, well, I don't think Garion was involved in that sort of thing. And Kottelbach, not to miss a beat, comes back by saying he was on duty this morning in the Kreuzberg neighborhood. You see in the headlines in the newspaper in this episode, there were riots and deaths reported both in the neighborhood of Kreuzberg and in Wedding. So it would seem like it makes sense that Garion was a part of that. Two points to note here. One is that at this point in time, Benke's stance on some of these political matters seem a little unclear, but her stance is ultimately going to be very important to the plot. So more on that to come. But here at least seems like she's somewhat sympathetic or at least willing to hear with an open mind what Cattleback has to say about the May Day Massacre. The other point I wanted to make is that Garion actually comes back and interrupts this conversation after he's been on the phone with Charlotte, who calls him pretending to be the chief of police. This woman is ballsy. I do like that, that she tells Miss Elizabeth, oh, I'm. this is the chief of police calling. I want to know the voice that she uses. I wish we could hear that, yeah. And then she, again, lies to Garion and says, I just wanted to take advantage of using the office phone as if she's still at the police department right now. But she's in the basement of the Mocha FD, arranging a little date to meet with Garion to exchange information the very next day. Garion wants her to go to Svetlana's address, which he got off the envelope in Kartikov's old room. She says, yep, I'll head on over there and I'll meet you tomorrow. She reports all that back to Walter Bruno and he's very pleased. To wrap up this episode, we get a couple really quick scenes that are just tying up some loose ends for some of our main characters. This is where we see Greta go to the shelter but get turned away. We see Rath looking through some of Kartikov's belongings. And finally, we see Svetlana again ratting out Kartikov. Oh, yeah. After smoking in bed with her erect nipples in the moonlight. Once Kartikov falls asleep, she picks up a beautiful 1920s phone made of, like, gold and ivory and calls the Soviet embassy. Relentless. <laughs> Cannot trust that woman. Try to have me killed on... <laughs> Try to have me killed once? Shame on me. <laughs> no, how's it go? Try to have me killed once? Shame on you. Try to have me killed twice? Shame on me. <laughs> Try to have me killed once? Shame on you. Try to have me killed twice? You, you can't... You can't... Kill me again. Thank you, George W. Bush. Yeah, the scene ends right after, the whole episode ends right after that phone call. Very quick cut to credits. And it cuts nicely from Svetlana to Joas Zustaub with her singing over the uh, closing credits. Beautiful. Still not over that song. Great One day song. It, may be, it may get old, but not yet. No, definitely not old for me yet. There's, there's one big takeaway from this episode that I'm really only synthesizing now in the studio as we're recording, which is that women have no place in proper society. Absolutely not. They can't be trusted, number one. They are easily manipulated, number two. They are deceitful, number three. And they are weak, you know? I, I just, the more I watch this show, I just, I'm, I'm starting to second guess whether having a female co-host was the right idea for this podcast. Oh. <laughs> Are you putting me in the corner? No, I'm just kidding. I would ride or die for Charlotte Ritter. Same. She's where Same. it's at. I'm loving her more by the moment, by the episode. No, but you're right. The directors are getting real real about the, you know, status of women 
in this time and place. I love that they have successfully built, over just four episodes, a world where I can feel the pressures for women and, and a lot of other people, certainly for communists, but the pressures for women and other people who are marginalized at this time. Just the walls are closing in in all ways. And women, when they are cornered in the show with those pressures mounting on them, some of them break and some of them are magnificent in that moment of pressure and find a way to survive. Svetlana does it in a way that we don't really like, but she's definitely doing it. And Charlotte does it in a way that I'm much more sympathetic for, but it's impressive in both cases. Leslie, do you hear that? Do you know what that means? Does it mean it's time to clear all the broads out of the autopsy room? No, although that's always a good policy. It means that it's time to dive into the history portion of the podcast where we'll learn about the May Day Massacre, also known as Berlin's Bloody May. So episode four of Babylon Berlin centers around a real-life event that occurred in 1929 on May 1st. It was a, a massacre that actually went on, the rioting went on, I think, for three days. But in the context of the show, it takes center stage so much so that some plots are skipped over just for this episode. We don't see any of the Ritter family, and we don't really get a lot of the Svetlana Kardakov plot playing out much in this episode either. There's a lot of room being carved out to make space for the May Day event. Yeah, porn plot is on pause too. Yeah, the porn film barely gets mentioned, if at all, in this episode because there's bigger fish to fry. This is one thing that Babylon Berlin was noted for, and I think part of the reason that it went international is because even though the plot and characters are fictional, they make sure to build that fictional plot around the real world and real events that take place day to day at this time period in Berlin. And we haven't said this yet on the podcast, but the timing of the episodes is really interesting. It's it's happening almost in real time. Every episode covers one, maybe two days. So when Garion gets to town in Berlin, it's just late April. Yeah, it's and... like four days before episode four. Exactly. And so on May 1st, if you were a history buff in Germany watching the very first two episodes of the show, you would know that this event was coming. And indeed it is. And they mention it. They kind of like slip it in in some of the previous episodes. In episode two, Garion needs to find a new hotel room mm-hmm. because workers' party members are coming Coming to town for this demonstration in episode three, you see Stefan's family has the loud radio on announcing that there's going to be unrest the next day because the KPD, the Communist Party, is distributing leaflets in these neighborhoods saying they're going to demonstrate despite there being a ban on public demonstrations. And then we actually see that showdown with law enforcement in episode four. So before we dive into what actually happened, why don't you tell us what May Day is? So May Day is International Workers' Day. International Workers' Day became a thing in 1889 after a resolution was passed at the Marxist International Socialist Congress, and it was held in Paris that year. Such a cool, fun, hot time to be a leftist in the late 1800s, I guess, hanging out in Paris. So I guess like across Europe, you know, May 1st is recognized by many countries. Oh yeah, a lot of countries. Now, not in America. We don't have May Day. We don't have our Labor Day on May 1st, you'll notice, of course. But it was actually Americans that chose that date for a lot of other countries in the world. It was the American Federation of Labor. So that those were the American delegates that went to this Marxist International Socialist Congress. They chose May 1st 
because three years previously, in 1886, the Haymarket Affair had happened in Chicago, Illinois, which was a large demonstration of workers in America fighting for the eight-hour workday. And then it is said, there's some controversy around this, there was said that anarchists threw a bomb made Mm -hmm. of dynamite that ended up killing police officers and civilians, and then police officers opened fire on a crowd of socialist demonstrators, and a lot of people died there. Um, in Haymarket Square. That's why it's called the Haymarket Affair sometimes. So the American delegation, in commemoration of that three years previous event, suggested May 1st as this new international workers' holiday. If you want to learn more about the whole heyday... Heyday? Haymarket. Haymarket. If you want to learn more about the whole Haymarket... The Haymarket Massacre. Massacre or event. The Dollop has a really good episode on Lucy Parsons, who was tied up, embroiled in that event. Yeah, The Dollop, a podcast hosted by Dave Anthony and his co-host Gareth Reynolds, does have a great episode about, say her name again, is it Lucy Parsons? Mm -hmm. So the episode about Lucy Parsons from the podcast The Dollop does also cover this event in America, the Haymarket Affair. Great podcast in general. So anyway, we're getting off track here. The reason that May Day was a thing and was the day to publicly demonstrate in support of workers' rights is because of this 1889 Marxist International Socialist Congress, and in part because of the fight both in America and in Europe for the eight-hour workday. But then fast forward a little bit to the future, our past, 1929, it was a thorny affair to publicly demonstrate in Berlin at that time because the previous year there had been a ban on such public demonstrations. And that ban was put in place by police chief Carl Friedrich Zorzabel, real character in the show, real man in real life. He initially put that ban in place to thwart a pro-Adolf Hitler National Socialist Party party rally, I guess you could say, that was going to happen in 1928. But then the Prussian state, the part of Germany that Berlin exists in, they adopted this ban, you know, statewide all over Prussia. So one year later, 1929, there still was a ban on these public demonstrations. The KPD, the German Communist Party, at least the members at the top, new leadership at the top, wanted to demonstrate anyway, in defiance of this new ban. Now that was in part because Carl Friedrich Zorzabel was a social democrat. He wasn't just head of the police. He was also politically active. He worked for the party. And their partner in government, the Social Democrats, partnered with left-leaning political groups such as the KPD in order to govern the country. They needed a coalition of, you know, center-left parties to get it done. The KPD saw this ban as an insult, and more so than that, they had new leadership picked by the Russian Soviets. They had put this guy Ernst Thalmann in charge of the German Communist Party, and he was apparently much more hard-lined, much more confrontational than previous leadership. So it wasn't every Everybody in the Communist Party, and it wasn't everyone who was left-leaning that wanted to, you know, clash with police and defy the ban. But enough leadership at the top and enough extremists willing to follow this Ernst Thalman guy did come out into the streets. But that's what May Day is, and that's why it happened on May 1st, and that's why it was so contentious in 1929. But let's get down to the brass tacks of what really happened in Berlin at that time. Leslie, what went down? In episode four of Babylon Berlin, we get this fairly heart-wrenching, dramatic scene where Garion and and Walter Bruno run into the the apartment where two women have been shot. And they were presumably kind of innocent bystanders just watching the activity from their balcony. And come to find out, the directors did it again. That was actually something that happened. So there were, I think, in total about 33 people killed in the protest. But a lot of folks were bystanders. So there was one man who was shot just watching from his open window. Um, A couple other people were shot through their doors. And they had been some of those folks in like kind of like a sit-in protest or like a gathering 
gathering indoors. Which would have been legal. Yeah, totally legal. Yeah, not an open public gathering. Um, so, yeah, so there, there were a lot of... Collateral damage? A lot of collateral damage. Thanks, Dan. It sounds like, from what I read, it was all collateral damage. I heard that there, there were no firearms found amongst KPD demonstrators. Yeah, so another thing that we see in episode four that was true to life was that the police did go door to door, specifically in wedding looking for firearms. I guess they probably had to like do something that on paper would look like they were doing their job. So they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll go door to door. But they they found essentially nothing other than World War One relics, essentially, like not a pistol that you're doing yeah, not assault crim- criminal activity with. Not something you start a revolution with. Definitely not. So um, I'm not sure that they necessarily thought that they would find anything. It sounds to me, or I think that it was all pretense. I love that we have to really, like, (laughs) even though we're recording our own podcast and we can say whatever we want, we both feel the need to, like, really be careful about what we say because this is somewhat political and deals with police brutalizing innocent people. Even though all these people are long since dead, that's the America that we live in right now, Leslie. I feel like your your halting statements are very telling of the world we live in where you could definitely be gunned down in the street by law enforcement at any point in time with no accountability. You're not wrong. I also just don't want to give people the wrong idea when I'm literally just spouting off my opinion and not facts. I want to give everybody the right idea about the way I feel about police violence. It's not cool. It's not cool. Not cool. It's essentially like the 1929 version of stop and frisk. It's like we're going to go to wedding, which is a known communist sort of like holdout and just search everybody's apartment for firearms. And also, I, I will have to say what I read was a lot of the firearms were from World War One, So they would have been like people's souvenirs. That's probably the wrong word, but like a keepsake from World War One. It just made me think about how much brotherhood, especially Bruno, feels for other people who participated in World War one but man 10 years later when politics are divided all that goes out the window yeah it's pretty rough i do love that little flintlock pistol that bruno finds <laughs> in the scene. in the television show and he jokingly puts it to his own head i mean kudos to that actor he's fabulous oh my god oh my god he's so great i love him so much we'll have yeah we're gonna go more into him later but back to the events of may 1st 1929 in berlin you said 33 people died and i think there was just a small handful of law enforcement officers who were who were harmed as well yeah so from what i read 33 people were killed 200 were injured no police officers were killed but one was injured. Just one. Okay. One was injured and of the 33 people killed, of course, they were, like I said, all civilians and none were Communist Party members. Oh, man. Woof. Woof. Now, a lot of them were bystanders or perhaps just unregistered, but they none of them, you know, had their name down on the list of the Communist Party. So this took place in the TV show just in like one morning, just in one day. But in real life, the Blut May or Bloody May was a three day long tit for tat affair because, of course, once news got out just later that day, in the evening of May 1st, everybody in the city would have known about this violent outburst where innocent people were killed. And so the next two days, apparently, there was civil unrest, not to the degree that happened on May 1st or so I read, but it continued. You know, violence continued to flare up across the city and clashes between law enforcement and communists or suspected communists, we'll never know, happened in the next two days. Yeah, so from what I read, on May 1st, the police kind of had everything under control or had gotten the violence to stop, at least momentarily, by like midnight of May 1st. But then the next day, May 2nd, the Communist Party called for a general strike. This, from what I read on 
May 2nd is when the RFB, so the paramilitary, kind of join in on the fight. So they're not there on May 1st. They come on May 2nd. Okay, okay. So then the fighting ensues some more, but by May 3rd, all the fighting's ended. So by episode four, we don't necessarily know where this will go in terms of the characters in the show. We don't know how important the events of May 1st will be to the continuing plot arc of Babylon Berlin. But what we do know about real life and real history is that this was a turning point for the Social Democratic Party and not in a good way. They had had their support slowly eroded over the last decade from 1919 onward. They were losing support from far left and certainly revolutionary leftist pro-communists had had kind of left the more centrist governing coalition led by the Social Democratic Party. But after Bloody May, even some of the KDP members, you know, the official Communist Party that was still partnering in government with the centrist Social Democrats in order to get things done, that support was totally undermined by this event, in large part because they could draw direct lines between the violence that happened on the street and the Social Democratic Party because Carl Friedrich Zorzabel, the chief of police, is a party member, had worked for the party for decades and was put in that position by the party. And just as he did in the TV show, I believe it's episode three, at the top of the stairs where he basically calls for this violence, all but asks for it. That is actually either what happened in real life or more importantly, what people believe happened. Blame fell on him and by extension, the Social Democratic Party. They started to lose support from the left and as a result, they could no longer govern. So by 1930, you know, this is not spoiling anything in the show, but by 1930, when new elections came along, there was no centrist government coalition that the Social Democrats could govern from and form a cabinet. Germany was kind of rudderless from then, and that kind of power vacuum is how you get someone like Adolf Hitler to come into power. I don't know how or when that will play out in the show. Because as we mentioned earlier, this show is going day by day, and it's only 1929 right now. So we have plenty of time before that happens. But we know that's inevitable based on history. Because of Blute May, the KDP start to be more and more vocal in their opposition to the SDP. And the SDP's attention really starts to hone in on the KDP. They're starting to see them amongst all the political parties as their biggest threat. Everybody thinks the communists are out to get them. Everyone, Everyone wants the communist. Everybody in Europe and then later in America is like, the communist threat is the one and only threat. That's all we care about. Nothing else matters. And apparently they're the best fall guys. Perfect scapegoat. Perfect scapegoats. Apparently. Uh, I mean, I'm going to have to say that the Bolsheviks kind of, they, they put a bad taste in everybody's mouth. They set mouth. a horrible example. Bad, bad example. But I think part of the sort of repercussions of this whole dynamic between the KDP and the SDP is that simultaneously the Nazi party is just growing and building and to be determined where we'll see how we'll see what happens. There is a great article that talks about this infighting amongst left-leaning political parties in in history and certainly now. Uh, but an article by Lauren Ballhorn entitled May May Day Bloody May Day, which is published in Jacobin Magazine. It's a left-leaning socialist quarterly out of New York City. City. That article is great in terms of giving you a rundown of how left-leaning, well-meaning political organizations fail to cooperate and that cooperation disintegrates. They they use 1929 Berlin as an example. So if you want to know more about that far more than what Leslie and I can present here on this podcast, uh, check out May Day, Bloody May Day uh, by Lauren Ballhorn in Jacobin Magazine. It's got a good focus specifically on the, the political infighting that happened after this bloody event. Dan, all this talk about massacres is making me hungry. 
What are you in the mood for? Well, I've totally already eaten, and I'm definitely not hungry. But if we go to a cafe near Alexanderplatz, I'm going to eat every single thing on my plate, and I'll probably take the money off the table afterwards. Well, hey, this one's on me. How about instead we have a little Leckerbissen? Oh, tidbits? My favorite. Juicy morsels. Juicy morsels? Tender tidbits. Golden nuggets. Sporkfuls of schnitzel. This episode sponsored by Red Wine. Horse Heaven Hill. Horse Heaven Hill. Horse Heaven Hill. Horse Heaven Hill. The vineyard is apparently on Horse Heaven Hill in Washington. Sounds lovely. If you're a horse. A dead one. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, I got so oh, is God. this just where like the butcher was? <laughs> horse Heaven Hill might as well be. Might as well be. <laughs> dead Mare Mountain. <laughs> Oh my god, I'm dead. <laughs> Not as dead as the horse I'm kicking, motherfucker. Oh my god. It's true though. Horse Evan Hill is absolutely just like where the old meat butcher was. Yeah. Yeah. They're just like jizzing it up. Not jizzing. Zizzing? They're jizzing it up. No, I think you had it right the first time. That's the Wait, saying, isn't the it? What's the idiom? Zizzing? You're jizzing. <laughs> You're jizzing it up. Zhuzh. Zhuzhing it up? Yeah, what's zhuzh? I feel like that was on Seinfeld and I just missed it. I don't think I'm qualified to define zhuzh. Zhuzh. You know it? It it has a certain... How would you spell zhuzh? Je ne sais quoi. You you just know it when you see it. J or G? You don't spell... It's J-I-Z-Z. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm falling for that. Zhuzh. I'm three glasses of red wine deep, and I'm in the mood for Leckerbissen. Like, I am... Zhuzhing up. I'm feeling snacky. Okay. For those of you at home wondering how to spell zhuzh, it's Z-H-O-O-S-H. Thank you. I was wondering. Mm Mm-hmm. Zhuzh. Zhuzh. I do like that word. Or also, sorry, also spelled Z-H-U-Z-H. Yeah. Where the fuck did zhuzh come from? Let's find. Let's dig deep into the etymology of zhuzh. That's why you're joining in today, right? Hello, listeners. Have you ever wondered where the term zhuzh <laughs> came from? I bet it's Yiddish. Let's find out. For those of you who tuned into this podcast today to figure out what the word zhuzh means and where it came from, it came or has been attributed to polari, which is a kind of slang used in the British underground performing art scene, especially around the gay subculture. Dope. So it's not even a, it's not, it's a made up word. I would argue that all words are made up words. You're not wrong. But I know what you mean. It's jargon. Yeah. Slang. I like zhuzh. Me too. I'm going to use it more now that I can clearly say it and not just say jizz. (laughs) Jizz it up. (laughs) What if I was just... Continue to be clueless, and we're like, yeah, let's jizz it up. Oh, my God. (laughs) Leslie. (laughs) Oh, wow. You undoubtedly have some endearing fans (laughs) because of your many missteps and misspeakings. That, I think, proclaiming that you want to jizz it up (laughs) would make you some friends in in a hurry. I hope so. I mean, that's flattering. 
I think most people would be like, I've, I've just been waiting for someone else to say it. I wasn't brave enough, but that was what yeah. was in my heart. Thank you, yeah, Leslie, yeah. for speaking my truth. Why make it so, you know, and honestly, I'm really reading between the lines here, but maybe it does, maybe it's etymology is from the word jizz. I think that you and I can start that rumor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> you heard it here first. Zhuzh. <laughs> it is a reference to jizz. <laughs> By adults, for adults. That's right. Back to the Leckerbeeson, though. For the Leckerbeeson portion of today's show, for episode four, there really is one big bombshell in there, and that's Marlena Dietrich. But before that, I want to at least get to some of the smaller tidbits, the little crumbs first, the appetizers to the appetizers, if you will. The postal code that Bruno alludes to in the scene where police are about to raid an apartment building, or what I would call an apartment building, in the Kreuzberg neighborhood after the, the standoff, the confrontation with pro protesters and police. He mentions this postal code or this like string of numbers and letters. Can you say it for us, Leslie? S-O-36. So he mentions S-O-36, which I had no idea what that meant. I thought maybe he was making some sort of reference to old World War One military jargon. I don't know. But it turns out it's a, it's a real postal code, the way that the city of Berlin would have been subdivided into neighborhoods and then further subdivided into buildings and apartments. Or what I've learned would have might, might have been called rental barracks. So like really, really poor working class people might live in these giant tenement homes, these huge apartment buildings that might have a beautiful facade on the outside facing the street, but inside were just dank, small rooms for rent, like the one that Charlotte's family lives in. I don't know the German word for it, but it would translate to rental barracks. So SO36 refers to the big apartment building that Bruno and his vice squad are going to raid. Apparently that postal code no longer exists. I mean, the city of Berlin has grown an enormous amount since 1929. Things have changed. But in its place, Leslie, you were telling me that there's a a famous venue there now. Yeah, apparently there's a nightclub called SO36 in that same area of Berlin. And it came around in the 1970s-ish when punk music was a thing. And it was kind of like a underground, anti-authoritarian, liberal place to go. It's like the punk rock scene. So the big Leckerbissen for the show actually comes from the song that starts this episode, Das ist Berlin, which translates to This is Berlin. It is a song about the city of Berlin, of course. And in my research, brief research, I should admit, I wasn't able to identify who wrote the music or who wrote the song. The version that plays in this episode is sung by Marlene Dietrich, who is from the city of Berlin, and and I would argue has the most famous version of the song. She recorded it in the 1960s, but there are versions of the song available that predate her recording. So it, it's not clear that she certainly didn't write it herself, but it's not clear who did. Not clear to me anyway. If you know the actual, you know, original lyrical writer for Das East Berlin, please email us at thedlpresents at gmail.com. Yeah, there's some evidence that a group of men born around the turn of the century, um, one man wrote the music and two men wrote the lyrics. I saw that in one place, but yeah, we didn't quite get to the bottom of that one. Marlena Dietrich is huge. What a life. Like, lived an incredible life. Did you know who she was before this? I only knew about her in passing. Yeah. Um, and I had known her by her look. I had seen pictures of her, those famous images of Marlena Dietrich wearing a coat and tails, like a 
tuxedo with a top hat and cigarette in hand. But I didn't know that she was a German expat and, and, and all this sort of stuff that we're about to get into. She lived a phenomenal life. The directors of Babylon Berlin included her version of Das ist Berlin, certainly on purpose. And not a spoiler here, but in a later episode in this season, they reference Marlena Dietrich again. She's very representative of the time, and we'll get into more of that later. I also, I had not heard of her before at all, but I had seen her picture, the same picture you're mentioning, um, where she's wearing the top hat, and and one of the sequence of photos, she's smoking a cigarette, and she's in her tuxedo outfit, and she's just looking fabulous. Her life and times touch on so many of the themes of Babylon Berlin. She's from Berlin. She got her start as a cabaret singer on stage there, and so there's already a bit of a a reference to the Mocha FD. She was known to be a gender-bending woman who was unafraid to wear men's clothing on stage and on camera, and so a bit of a reference there to Psycho Negros, a fictional invention for the show. She also left Germany, left Berlin, and eventually became an American citizen and a very vocal anti-Hitler, anti-Nazi activist. And so in some ways that touches on the, I guess, the stronger moral character of some people in the show, some people who are pro-democracy anyhow and and would have eventually fought against the, the tyranny of the Hitler regime. And she was bisexual, quite famously so. Another theme of the show, this sort of blurred line and, and sort of new age sexuality that was able to be on display in this part, you know, in this time in history in Berlin and very few other places, apparently. I want to say one thing before we dive into her career, taking it way, 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 way back. She was actually born Maria Magdalene Dietrich. And I only point that out because you will see her referenced as both Marlene and Marlena. And her name is spelled how we in, you know, English speaking countries might say Marlene with an E on the end. But it would have been pronounced Marlena and it's kind of an amalgamation of her first and middle name. So she was born Maria Magdalene Dietrich in 1901. It's so close to being Mary Magdalene. Yeah, very intentional, I'm sure. On her parents' part. Yes. And she actually changed her name because her parents were disapproving of her kind of life in the spotlight of her being an actress. Yeah, because she was started out in the early 1920s as a cabaret singer and cabaret performer, not necessarily on camera, but on stage in Berlin, and then soon thereafter on camera in black and white silent films in Berlin, and then later on in talkies or, you know, films with sound. Yeah, let's start there. So she was in Germany. Germany's first talking film, Der Blue Angel, or The Blue Angel, which came out in 1930 and was directed by Joseph von Sternberg, and which sort of initiated her very long relationship, both professionally and personally, with Sternberg. Shortly after The Blue Angel, she ends up moving to America to continue to work with von Sternberg and make motion pictures there. And we'll go into a couple of other reasons why she may have moved to America at that point in time. Yeah, Sternberg was pretty controlling of her career. And there's some evidence, at least, that they were lovers, even though Marlena Dietrich was technically married. Yeah, actually, so before um, before her first movie, even, she got married, had a child. They, I think, had a very short romance, but actually stayed married through their lives. But you were saying she had, she had moved to California. She was now working with Sternberg in LA, or excuse me, in, in Hollywood. And they together put out Many more movies through the course of the years. Some of the more notable ones were Morocco, mm-hmm. The Devil is a Woman, mm-hmm. The Western. So Destry Rides Again, yeah, which I think was 1932. Uh, I could be wrong. It might be 1934. She per- she 
is with Jimmy Stewart in Destry Rides Again. But up until that point, she'd been playing a kind of specific type of role that I don't know if this exists in Hollywood anymore. I mean, this is during the Hollywood studio system when films are being made in a sort of, I don't know, almost like an ad lib sort of way, like a fill in the blank. You just like plugged in certain actors into certain stock roles. I'm not giving enough credit to directors of that time, but films were a little more formulaic at that time. And Marlena Dietrich was very famous for playing a beautiful woman who was willing to be a little aggressive, a little bit sexual on screen, for the time anyway. And in Destry Rides Again, specifically, she participates in a fight scene that nowadays wouldn't seem strange if you were going to the movies in 2021, but at the time was apparently pretty wild, borderline scandalous that she attacked Jimmy Stewart with a bottle in this bar. I don't know. It was a different time when women didn't do that sort of thing, but Marlene Dietrich ushered it in. Yeah, I think she's kind of our first, like, femme fatale. Definitely. In being the first femme fatale, like, that was a hard pill for morally upright people to swallow and to see on screen. And so she plays a couple of different characters through her movies that are doing like fairly salacious things, kind of um, sexual things that maybe people weren't used to seeing on the big screen. And bringing about the downfall of male of characters. Of men, yeah, which apparently people had a hard time with. And I was reading from one source that people, you know, producers thought like, okay, our, our viewers are a little bit too too moral to accept the fact that our leading lady is like selling sexuality or sexual favors. But you know what they can swallow is if she gets her justified end and gets murdered instead. Yeah, before the recording, Leslie was telling me that it seemed more acceptable that a man would kill this woman than to have her get away with possibly making some money or making some advantage off her sexuality. And I guess that was the case. Yeah, I mean, apparently that was the time she was in. Everyone understands the idea of a movie star in our day and age. And in in the 21st century, everyone knows what it is to be ultra famous for being a Hollywood film star. And Marlena Dietrich certainly fit that bill for the 1930s and 40s. But there were other parts of her life that were so incredible. I mean, there, there were other actresses that aren't brought up in Babylon Berlin for good reason. Marlena Dietrich in particular had a political side to her too, had a really strong political convictions. And when she left Germany in the 1930s, right after Hitler's rise, to power around 1930, she was vocally anti-Nazi. She was anti-fascist, an early member of Antifa, perhaps. But certainly vocally anti-Hitler. And she had the luxury, let's say, of of being able to be anti-Hitler because she did not live in Germany. She had applied for U.S. citizenship in 1937 and was eventually awarded it before the breakout of the Second World War. But she did so in a way that I think few women would put themselves out there doing. And, And of course, many Germans shunned her as a result. She was kind of a controversial figure in Germany in the late 1930s and forward. But it doesn't seem like she made that decision to advance her own career or anything like that. When I first heard about that, I thought, oh, of course, she'd already moved to America. The money's better. You're working in film. You're working in Hollywood. There's nowhere to go but there, you know. So you might as well renounce Hitler because that's the thing to do. That is not the case. That is not true. When she was anti-Hitler, there were people in the United States who thought he was fine. I mean, there were were people, there were Germans and non-Germans in the United States in the early 1930s that thought that Hitler was one of the best things that had happened happened to recent Germany. Marlena Dietrich was definitely not licking her finger and putting it in the air to see which way the wind was blowing and and going with popular sentiment. She apparently saw firsthand that it wasn't a good thing. And she was like, I don't care what you say. This guy's a friggin idiot. Yeah, she was kind of an early adopter, I would say. Like she was not just waiting to see what the common sentiment was. She 
She went above and beyond. She performed with the USO during the Second World War, including performing near the front lines. Like, she went back to Europe to perform for U.S. soldiers uh, fighting in the Second World War. She also toured portions of the United States performing in order to raise money for U.S. war bonds. Yeah, exactly. So she became a U.S. citizen in 1939 and was patriotic to, to America, to the U.S. She went on tour. This is right around the time of the start of the USO. She was associated with them and traveling around doing her cabaret act and, like you said, raising money, raising investments in war bonds. Along those lines, she was the fourth woman to be awarded the Medal of Freedom, which is now known as the Presidential Medal of Freedom. It's one of the highest honors that a civilian can receive. She was awarded it November 18th of 1947. So, you know, shortly after the war, apparently it, you know, it paid off. That's really cool that America welcomed a German, granted a a gorgeous and talented German. But (laughs) that's really cool that they were willing at a turbulent time like that to really accept this woman into the American zeitgeist and recognize her contribution. I read somewhere that in the late 1930s, people associated with Hitler, maybe people in his like inner circle or his cabinet, his advisors, whatever, asked Marlene Dietrich to come back to Germany and kind of be um, be a movie star there, be a popular figure there, represent Germany in film internationally. And I think, be a propaganda Exactly. Figure. Like, yeah, exactly. Which I kind of find fascinating, though, because she was famous. Everyone, including Hitler in his inner circle, would have known about her. And this is at a time when they're trying to stamp out any kind of, like, freedom of expression and creativity. But they're like, they gotta, you gotta have somebody. You gotta have someone acting in these propaganda films. Goebbels needs someone on his team. So, I don't know. I It surprises me that they would choose this, like, fairly openly avant-garde, possibly bisexual figure to be like the face of Germany's propaganda videos. But Yeah, apparently they approached her in London at some point in the late 1930s and offered her the equivalent of being a queen with no political authority. in Germany. I mean, the idea would be that if she would return to Germany and would drum up support for Hitler's Germany, that she would be the nation's shining star. Like that, you know, you would be guaranteed to be both the most famous film star in Germany, as well as treated like royalty and smart on her part, but she turned that down. Yeah, good for her for standing her ground. She knew where her allegiance was way before they approached her. But you've brought up another interesting wrinkle, another interesting layer of Marlena Dietrich's legacy and life. Life, which is that she was bisexual at a time when that certainly wasn't widely accepted and could have ended the career of any number of men and women working in Hollywood at that time. In the context of the show Babylon Berlin, there, there's clearly a bit of gender fluidity and the availability of alternative sexual identities could be accepted in the city at that time. But we all know what's coming, the kind of like crushing fascism that will come with the Nazi regime. Marlene Dietrich successfully avoided that, moved to the United States, a place that's kind of puritanical in its own right, but having moved to California and and working in film in Hollywood, found a way to somehow toe that line of a woman who is publicly speaking, married to a man and has a child, living this sort of normative, acceptable life, but had, I don't know, had a sexuality that both on screen and in her real life straddled those boundaries. In my research, I couldn't find an explanation for why she and her husband never divorced. If you know why, let us know at the DL Presents at gmail.com. I'm very curious why they would have never gotten divorced because they lead completely separate lives and Marlena's life includes affairs with both men and women 
who are both married and single. Yeah, I wouldn't speculate on a list of like who she was with and who she was not because the evidence for that sort of thing is really hard to substantiate. If anything, while I was researching Marlena Dietrich's sexuality, what I found is that papers of the time in the 30s and 40s would print literally anything. They were just <laughs> gossip nonsense. The gossip column was a column. The gossip column was the front Can page. Can you imagine that? Fake news, front page. Fake it's happening. News. Guess what? Leslie Something's going to change. carrying on an affair with the fuzzy dead cat that's over our studio microphone. With Don King. Leslie Leak has an affair with prize fighting promoter Don King. I believe that Don King has passed on to another life. But for those of you listening, uh, when we record in the studio, I put a fuzzy object over our studio microphone so we don't blow into it. And it happens to look like Don King's hair, which Leslie has just looked up photos of Don King for the first time because she doesn't know who Don King is. And she is realizing the similarity between the dead cat fuzzy microphone cover and the real life hairstyle of the 80s and 90s rocking on Don King's head. Don King looks like an amazing human being and I will have you know that the man is still alive at the ripe old age of 90 years old. Good for you, Don King. Damn, Dan Fenner cannot be trusted. Everybody know that. Please know that. If you're listening to the DL Presents, I cannot be trusted. But to get back on track, (laughs) to get back on track with Marlena Dietrich's incredible life, she lived a bisexual lifestyle in Hollywood in the 30s and 40s, including relationships with possibly Greta Garbo. Yeah. It is interesting to think about how new of an idea this might have been, at least to see it publicly displayed, and then to think about how today it's becoming way more normative, I will say that, but in our lifetime, and not to date us, but, you know, it would not have been normative. It was not the norm, I would say, when we were growing up. Heck no. Hell no. Absolutely not. Hell no. And I will have you know that we are not 60 years old. We've come a long way and we haven't at the same time. That brings me to the fourth, you know, layer of icing on the Marlene Dietrich cake, which is delicious, by the way. Her gender bending, uh, aside from living a bisexual lifestyle, which maybe that was just her own private thing, but her willingness to publicly on screen and in her private life bend the norms of what was female gender identity in the 1930s and 40s is super cool. And the way that she paved the road for many people after her to do things as simple as wear pants for crying out loud. She really just seemed to take it in stride. Like everyone else might have been like in the shadows. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that. She's a what? She did what? No, she's just she's just doing her thing. Being cool, wearing her pants, smoking her cig, kissing her ladies. The most famous Marlena Dietrich in pants story was in 1933. She was aboard a cruise liner headed for Paris. That's just a thing people say. I mean, Paris is inland, but anyway, she was sailing to France. But I just, I know that no one at home can appreciate how funny I think that Dan's misconceptions about geography are, but I find them hysterical. They are so bad. So bad. In an early episode of this podcast, I was under the legitimate impression that in the 1920s, Germany and Russia shared a border, which is not true and never has been. And Dan also thought that Costa Rica was an island. Costa Rica sounds like an island, doesn't it? It's one half of an island. Water on two sides. (laughs) Hey, girl, I'll take that. Anyway, enough ragging on Dan. No, you can keep ragging on me. I deserve it. Geography is not my strong suit. Do you know what do you know what my strong suit is? History and talking? Innuendo. <laughs> so she was sailing to France. We might cut all of these untruths. Point of the story is she's on board the Europa, 
a cruise liner headed for Paris and she was photographed on the deck of the Europa wearing what I think is a very fetching white pantsuit. So law enforcement in Paris sends a telegram to say that if Marlena Dietrich deboards the boat, like gets off the boat wearing men's garb in Paris, if she's wearing trousers in Paris, that she will be arrested. That's the official line. But when she gets off the boat, she wears a tweed pantsuit complete with like a beret and sunglasses and she looks badass. There's black and white photos from her getting off this cruise liner and she apparently made it onto the cover of fashion magazines because of that outfit and received both an apology and a bracelet (laughs) as kind of like a I'm sorry gift from the chief of police in Paris in 1933. Badass. Yeah. I mean, she is a badass. And those pictures of her from the cruise liner are great. She just looks like a total fox. And I'm sure like as soon as those police people see her, they'd be like, oh, damn, we were wrong. Lady deserves a bracelet. I mean, Parisian fashionistas had to give it up. Girl looked good. So to bring it back to the show, to tie this back into Babylon Berlin, I can see why the directors would have injected this reference to Marlena Dietrich via her song about Berlin. Marlena Dietrich is also representative of a lot of the motifs we're starting to see in the show already. She has been photographed and and given her time for the fact that she's been wearing men's clothes in real life. But in our show, we see Psycho Negros dress up as a man and at least in the Mocha FD Cafe gets a warm reception for her performance. We also know that Marlena Dietrich is bisexual and is kind of indicative of this alternative lifestyle that we're starting to see bubble up in Babylon, Berlin. Yeah, she really represents the kind of more liberal and progressive, socially forward aspects of the Weimar Republic that are really coming to center stage in Babylon, Berlin. In a tragic way, we know that that will be crushed in the future, that we know something that characters in the show do not know, which is that this kind of bohemian, city they live in won't last this way forever. Also, this won't be the last time we talk about Marlena Dietrich in this podcast. She will come up again in the show, and there's much more information about her that's interesting and pertains to the themes of Babylon Berlin, including the end of her life, because she didn't just suddenly disappear once the Second World War was over. She actually had a long and lively career and remained opinionated and political to the very end. Well, I think that's about all for episode four for the DL Presents Babylon Berlin. I, for one, am kind of sleepy and have had plenty of red wine from horse Heaven Hill, the Butcher's... Butcher's Slaughterhouse Hill. The Butcher's Slaughterhouse where horses go to become glue. Located in Washington. Glue Hill. Glue Hill. Sticky Hoof Hill. Red Wine. Sponsoring today's episode. Oh my god. (laughs) We've got big news in episode five. If you've listened to us this far, first of all, I'm so sorry. And also, congratulations and thank you. And you're welcome. You're welcome. Oh! I said it. If you've listened this far, you probably just uh, somehow have really tuned in on what Leslie and I are trying to do here. And I want to know who you are, because that's pretty amazing. I can't believe anyone would listen to us for this long. So we're going to get a little more personal starting in episode five and beyond. We've both got some big news. A lot of time uh, is going to pass between episodes four and episode five. We have some real life stuff going on that we'd love to talk about, as well as the second half of the first season of Babylon Berlin that heats up to an absolute boil. 
Bible. Stay tuned for episode five. That's it for today, folks. Thank you for listening to the DL Presents Babylon Berlin. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning in on. If you like what you've heard today, then tell your friends, tell your enemies, heck, tell your local vice squad. Look for us on social medias, and if you have any comments or you want to troll us, you can email the DL Presents at gmail.com. Und zu mir,